Hello and welcome to Tacos Tuesday. I'm your host, Trevon Heath, Head of Growth at Sequence. Today we're joined by Blair Force, our founder and CMO. We're going to dig into his story as a seller um, regarding the different things that he did that applied to getting ranked and creating sales and something I didn't know about, which is the 999 method. It's going to be a great show and let's get to it. Um, today, what we're going to be doing is showing the seller perspective. A lot of people don't know, but Blair started as a seller before starting prep. And today, we're going to give it insights on tips and tricks of getting into the business and insights for future sellers who want to get into the business. Yeah. So d- to give context for, for everyone listening, and, and Trevon, because I, I don't know how deep into this story I've even got with you before. but um, So I, I was doing baby caddies way back when. And uh, this was the early stage of Amazon. So this is 2012 Amazon, 2013 Amazon was when I really got into it. So for context at the time, Amazon, when did you get into Amazon, Trevon, just so I can have context? Um, probably 2016. Okay. So 2012, 2013, this is when like FBA was just getting started. Like this, this is when they literally made the formal announcement that FBA is even an option. So the landscape back then was way different because when I first started, I don't the the phrase private label, I guess is the best way to do it. I was doing this on eBay. So it was before FBA private label is what FBA private label is now, which is kind of a whole ethos around it. And uh, so, and I was doing, it was identical. I, I was sourcing from China uh, and this, I wasn't selling the products on Amazon. I was just doing eBay. I was sourcing from China. I was getting branded products and then I was reselling them on eBay. I'd also do arbitrage with stuff. So, and I was traditionally buying it in bulk. So I was doing PlayStations. I was doing a lot of electronics. Those I had to buy locally, as you guys can imagine. And electronics is a, probably a whole other conversation when it comes to Amazon and technicalities. Uh, but the same thing applied. The, the algorithm's a lot different, but eBay itself was a major marketplace back then, especially for like video games and electronics. Uh, but when Amazon came along, I really got into that space 2014 was when I really started to pick up. And there was a lot of tactics back then that I, I think are super valuable and to give the sellers and listeners context because a lot of these you can't do now. So one of the things that I did way back when because Helium 10 and Jungle Scout and all these tools, they they weren't available. It wasn't a thing. There was no there was no seller tools. The only one was Sellix at the time. And Sellix was like at what it was seemed like some new AI technology <laughs> compared to what there is now, which is like ridiculously powerful platforms that can actually really jump send you when it comes to Amazon. So one of the major techniques was called this 999 method. And me and the gentleman from Celix were, were literally talking about this a couple of weeks ago because this is how Celix started because they were literally just a keyword research tool at the time. So the 999 method was this. If you wanted to figure out how many sales every single day that you were doing, it wasn't as easy as it is now, which you can literally click a Chrome extension and just run the numbers. So the 999 method mean that... So if there was a product that I wanted to find, say with baby products, I'd have to go click the product, add to cart. And when it says the quantity, I would click 999. This is the technical max amount of product you can purchase from Amazon. So what would happen is that when you type in 999, Amazon will say, hey, unfortunately, there's only... 500 units left of this item, right? So it will say 500 units left. And what you do is on your spreadsheet, you'll put 500 units on uh, April 1st. 
April 2nd comes around, you do the exact same thing. And then when you do 999 again, it will come back and say there's uh, 490. You go, okay. Day three, day four, the stock slowly starts to go down and you do it for a two-week period. Everyone else automated this and that's where Helium 10 and Jungle Scout came from. But the same process applied. So I'd have two weeks of data and then with an Excel sheet, I was young, so I, I didn't know how to work Excel sheets properly at the time, but the same thought process applies. So I take a trending average of exactly what it looked like. And then this was my running average on how many units that specific SKU sold. I would then do this for a few dozen products. And then I do it for different categories too, depending if I'm looking at like three or four different private label products. I was really heavy into like the baby niche. So that was just where I was focusing on. But the baby caddies, I'd have like anywhere from eight to 10 listings and be running this 999 on a daily basis. And I do that for different categories. This was probably a two hour gig a day after all said and done. And at the time, I thought I was a bloody genius. <laughs> you know what I mean? I thought, I thought I was like, oh, I'm fooling the system right now. There's definitely got to be a better way. But at the time, that was like revolutionary. And this was ways to hack Amazon to figure out what it was. And I, I think I learned it on YouTube because uh, there was a couple like sellers back then and gurus, but it was a lot different than it was today. So anyway, the, the 999 was just one of those techniques I used that Celix did the exact same thing. They just automated it. And I just learned about this. So when Celix started and I was talking to them, I was like, did you do the 999 method? He's like, yeah. He's like, I just trained a, a software. He's like, I just wrote a script to do that 999 method. So I was like, oh, I was like, so there's no crazy technology here. He's like, well, now there is. He's like, but that back then I literally just wrote a script. It did 999 automatically instead of you doing it. He's like, so I just had the same Excel sheet you did. I just, I automated it versus your ass decided to just directly try to run the system yourself. I didn't even realize how primitive Amazon was. Um, I know like today they're still kind of cagey with some data like demographic targeting, um, some brand analytics, but to know the fact that they didn't even tell you how much you were making in sales over a two-week period is crazy. Yeah, like the, the other places were like the the way that I envisioned Amazon back then, it was it was no man's land. Like it was free real estate. So your ability to rank and we can go into some of the black hack tactics because it was a lot different way back when. And as you entered it, of course it was still a very shaky domain. But the amount of sellers that were doing like review schemes, were doing ranking schemes. At the time, there was these uh, hyper URLs. They don't work the same now, but these were ones that could like literally ramp you up in a day or two to the first page of any keyword that you wanted to. And also the advertising wasn't the same. It wasn't as competitive. So it was a free zone for a lot of brands and that they got such an early advantage because it was just so bloody easy to do. And it just wasn't a regulated system. You could generate as many reviews as you want. You could rank relatively easily. And if you wanted to take a black hat tactic, it was as simple as doing so. And there was Facebook groups around it and there was websites around this. Like it was, it was uncomfortable how easy it was. And it shouldn't have been like that. But at the time, this was, there wasn't sellers. There wasn't this Amazon FBA community. This was just, it was another way to sell products online, but it, it didn't have the, uh, the ethos or the feeling you get when someone talks about, starting an Amazon FBA business, which was just like, it was a different language at the time. So interesting. I think the number one question that every person that looks into getting into an FBA business is 
what products do I pick and what category do I decide to target? I know for you, um, you picked a particular um, category and product that no one expects a 18, 19 year old kid to do baby products. Um, what went into your decision to pick these products and run this private label business? It was honestly, it was purely this 999 tactic, to be honest. I, I looked, I look at everything in such like a subjective way in terms of if there's quantitative data behind it, I don't care if it's a pacifier, if it's girls lingerie, or it's a bloody leaf plant. Like if it sells, I'll figure it out. Now, if I went back in time, I'd probably pick a product that I was a lot more passionate in and I had product knowledge in. To this day, I'm probably in like a hundred mom to mom Facebook groups. Because this is where my customers lived and breathed. So back then, like I didn't know how to generate customers off of Amazon, which I, I think is a whole really cool conversation of this off-channel strategy brands are running. But at the time, when it came to Facebook, I just joined every mom-to-mom community because I needed to get reviews somehow. And there was, no, there was no regulations, as I was telling you. So you could just very easily generate reviews. Hopefully, Amazon's not watching this is my hope and uh, my hope and glory. But... Now I'm involved in all these mother Facebook groups because at the time it was what I had to get feedback on. So I'd go into these mom and mom Facebook groups like mom to mom Toronto, uh, mothers of Canada, things like this, or new babies Facebook group. I didn't know at the time. And I would just send them images of my product and I'd send them free samples and I'd tell the moderator, I'd give them $50 if they could promote it and I'd have a promo code for them. And it was like this like really early stage influencer marketing almost. But anyway, the the exciting part fades away really quickly, depending on how quickly cash comes in. So you have to find this nice middle ground was, was that I was an 18-year-old kid uh, in university. And obviously talking about baby products isn't the lady's favorite. And it's not the topic of conversation that you get into. But at the end of the day, it was the product that made sense. Now, I, I think it's almost become like a there's been products that I've done that are become like the laughing jokes of the Amazon space, like the garlic press and things like that, which is just like the running joke of Amazon. Like if you did a garlic press, it's, it's all, it's, you've found the exact same trend everyone else did. So I think my two recommendations for newer sellers is that one, hyper understand the market that you're going for. If you look at it from a Helium 10 tool or a Jungle Scope tool, it will only give you uh, this bracket of data. And there's a lot of assumptions that go into this, but there's so many sellers that jump in and they're looking at a trend. But what they don't understand is like everyone else is looking at the same trends. Like the, the data that you're looking at on a platform tool like X, Y, or Z is identical to Trevor on the data you're looking at. And sellers don't look at this. So you have to get really creative. And especially with the categories now, like it's, it's just a different landscape. You got you to look at a price higher. Uh, you got to be more competitive. You might need to go for oversized products because just going to kind of the standard norm, it's just it's hyper competitive of a channel now. So I, I think that's probably the one part is understand the market, but then also love the market. doesn't mean that you have to pick a product that you love. Uh, at the end of the day, like I did baby products, but it does help, especially on those longer days when you're eight, nine, 12 hours into packing orders and now you need to go fulfill your your life's destiny to, to ship out these baby products. You don't have the same uh, the same energy. I'm agnostic when it comes to business. So I could be running a flower shop or we could be running this bad boy. I'm okay with it. But when the when the fun times stop and it gets a little bit harder, I would have loved to have like a cool basketball jersey company or, you know what I mean? Something way cooler to do than to tell them, I'm at a bloody family dinner talking about baby products. It's 
it's a it's a tough conversation. And then if it's a failing baby company, oh my, you got a conversation on your hands. You know what I mean? So uh, I'd say pick and choose wisely. Do you always get the do you get the grace of doing that? Sometimes you don't. You can find a home winning product. The first product I found, 2015 probably, or this was like outside of all the baby ones. It was this glow in the dark duct tape. And at the time, there's literally no one doing it. So I found some guy that was doing it in France off Facebook. And like I was looking at his stuff and I was literally like, I should just do this in France because it's it was such an open market. But the US was hyper competitive. So I wanted to just do Canada. It was a whole thing. But at the time, if I did that now, I, the average probably does like a million a month for these glow in the dark duct tapes because it's all the it's all the big boys coming up. Um, but back then it was such early stage. Like most of these guys had like thirty reviews, forty reviews. Now they're multi million dollar companies. So uh, yeah, there's some cool products out there. Now it's now it's just different. There's not these kind of like home run products that come out of ordinary. And if you did, there's a good chance someone else thought of it. You know what I mean? One of the things I've noticed that have been very different from when you were um, a private seller and me being a part of this team and working on the advertising is how much Amazon ads have changed and gotten more sophisticated. Um, what were the things that you were using back in the day, advertising-wise, to rank and generate sales? There wasn't uh, there wasn't tools for the most part when I first got started. There was no like uh, automated ad tool. Like Celix was probably the closest thing to it. Or you pay for a guru course, but even then, there was no uh, there was no real education on Amazon ads. It was all about like Amazon private label. So like if there was gurus or or training modules, it was all about like how to list your product on Amazon. I don't know if that was because it was just such an open landscape; people didn't have answers to more hyper technical stuff, which is what I know you guys do on this podcast. I feel like I'm probably doing a disservice for everyone listening. Uh, but with advertising, way back when it was. I kept it really simple. And one, it came from negligence and just not enough education at the time because I was a university student and it also just wasn't that difficult because my niche wasn't hyper competitive. But the way that I was building out was just pure sponsored product ads. Uh, there was nothing too granular about it. Uh, I was doing some level of retargeting, but branded search was nowhere near what it is. And there was also no major branded competitors that were actually the brand that was reselling. So major companies instead of like P&G and Unilever, those brand searches weren't there, right? So the, the keyword volume was all skewed because, well, one, you could barely get keyword volume. You'd have to rely on uh, a Celix, for example, or you don't. And there's a couple different ways to tackle it, but all these brand searches weren't there. So these big brands weren't there. There weren't big companies. So you couldn't do a lot of the more advanced advertising. So it was as simple as like an automatic sponsor product. And I'd break that down to go into a bit more manual campaigns. And uh, there was still patent all the cool things you can do. It was just on its rudimentary level. And I'd love to get someone who hyper-focused on that to see how it changed or someone that actually went deep enough into Amazon ads way back then because I wish I knew what I learned now. But one of the major things that I did when I was starting because really there was two ways to collect keywords. It's either you run it on automatic, you let it go for 14 days, and then that data that you collect, you're just going to reshuffle it. That was literally the only way. Or option number two was search up your keyword on the search bar and whatever drops down, add those to your campaign list. That was it. That was it. There was, there was no exciting algorithm. There was no AI automation to generate the exactly recommended keywords. It was literally, I'd go into this and go, okay, 
uh, it was baby caddies blue or baby caddies for XYZ. And then this is how I was building out all of my data between that and the 999. That's all a man needed. You know what I mean? So it, uh, it worked. Uh, but again, it was very rudimentary. I have an interesting question for you. With the clients I've come across, I've sort of explained the current landscape of Amazon, like it's comparable to Netflix maybe 10, 15 years ago, where they were the only real player and every major corporation were trying to actually get into the game. Um, Amazon's sort of similar where you're where you were starting, where there wasn't these big guys getting into um, e-commerce and Amazon particularly. And now that they are, what I'm seeing is that there isn't a one-to-one -one translation from brick and mortar to the digital space. And now with COVID, um, things are even more different and e-commerce has really exploded. For those major corporations, what advice would you give them and why is it important to get into Amazon? Yeah, at the end of the day, every brand that's doing it now feels like they're super far behind because of the landscape, but I, I still feel that there's more than enough room on the table. I even still get asked all the time, like, is Amazon too late? And it now becomes more of a conversation about budget versus timing. Like, it depends how much you're willing to spend. And if you want to get into a hyper-competitive market like .com, you got to spend the big bucks. You, you might find an incredible product, but it it's just not the same. So what I recommend for these big brands is you you have to either figure it out yourself or you have to find a distributor partner. I, I don't really see any other way around it. The difficulty if a brand try to do it themselves is that their logistics and you guys know because at the end of the day like the amount of brands that we work with that have no bloody clue that's happening is is tough uh, our producer saying wrap it up soon so we'll keep it uh we'll keep it short and sweet but yeah like with these uh with these big brands they're they're in trouble um and this is why we've had to kind of build out our solution vertical based off of this but this idea of d2c is incredibly difficult and I think it opens up another conversation about is Vendor Central the right choice? And I think a lot of brands are jumping to Seller Central, but it might not be the right time, right? Like I don't feel that a lot of these brands need to go D2C because it's hyper complicated. They're switching their entire organization overnight and you're switching a billion dollar company, thousand plus employees, 10,000 plus employees, and now trying to figure out how to sell directly to the customer how to deal with return management, because this is all new language to them, how to deal with last mile delivery, which is a hyper competitive market and incredibly logistically difficult to figure out. That's why there's solution partners in between because of how difficult it is, right? So I think where brands are getting it wrong is that they're just not taking control of their supply chain or they're pulling themselves out directly. Nike is a great example, but brands will literally go to a place, and I'm, this is one of my predictions going into the next two years, is that these large corporations are going to be all the way in or all the way out. If they're all the way out, they're going to be in a lot of trouble because they are personally all the way out, but your brand's still going to be there. And unless you have a strong relationship like a Nike with Amazon, there's going to be resellers. They're going to dominate the market. They're going to hit your pricing. They're going to go into a clash. And then Walmart is going to get mad at you because you're undercutting them. And then you're going to lose your $500 million Walmart contract because, uh, John Snow from South Connecticut is undercutting the standard map policy across all the catalog, right? So uh, if brands end up approaching it themselves, they need to have a hyper focus on supply chain. Every brand that I know has distribution leaks, which means that they're selling to a distributor, that distributor is selling to another distributor, and there's three stores down the line that's selling out of their back door, reselling it on Amazon. 
this is where the trouble comes in. And the issues that we're seeing from kind of a global perspective is that the water's just too murky. Like for you to try to fix the one supplement store in South Carolina who's selling it to his best friend out the back door of that store, it's already too late. And every day that goes by, it's going to get way and way worse. It's this kind of ripple effect where the initial tidal wave happened, but these ripples are going to continue for years and years to come. So we see it like how we do with the major brands we work with, right? Like there's a lot of trouble every day that they don't take action and removing all these resellers because the noise will get bigger, the the volumes will get larger, and it's just it's like more money, more problems, <laughs> right? So um, there's no right answer for these brands, but every day there's no action, it's it's going to create like a 10x multiple on the amount of a murky storm and logistical nightmare you're going to deal with in three years. So I, I don't I don't think there's a, a middle ground. Uh, it's something that like I'm I'm super bullish on is that unless you have a solidified partner, you either hire in-house and try to figure out D2C, you either have a partner like a distributor who can purchase it and then manage those marketplaces, or you step off the channel entirely and have like hyper control of distribution. But for these big brands, they're they're too far. Like it needs to be for new brands coming into it. If they can fix their supply chain before it's too late, leaky distribution will stop. It's way too deep. But uh, yeah, that's my prediction. So big brands can get in. Um, but the small guys, I think, are going to have a much better chance now. They can get scrappy. They have a lot less budget. It's not hyper complicated. Uh, they have a really low skew assortment, which makes it a lot easier too. And they can fix the supply chain from the top down, which I think changes everything. Once you have nine stores that are all selling to another nine stores, or you are working with two distributors selling to Sobeys and Loblaws, like, that retail game is a different model um, and brands are trying to figure it out. But the small businesses and the small brands, like they're, they're going to get the advantage soon. They're going to get the advantage soon. The tables are finally turning after probably five years. Uh, so it's my prediction moving into things, but they got to do it wisely. I agree. I think the last two years have sort of been um, symbolism of where things are going. People are working from home. People are on their computers a lot more. We're seeing e-commerce explode. For, the, for these brands, um, they have to sort of make a decision of do they want to be blockbuster or not? You don't want to be that brand that misses the wave um, and aren't able to read the benefits of e-commerce. We saw these brands that were set up in 2018, 2019 that were working um, really reap the benefits of that 2020 spike within probably from April to June where things um, dramatically increased. And these brands became a lot more viable than these brick and mortar companies coming in late into the game because it's a more of an uphill battle due to competition. So you know what? So Jeff Bezos had a thing and it was um, the quarter that I'm working on today. So it, it was a, it was last year. It was his Q1 results. And it was like their best, it was right after COVID. It was their best performing quarter ever. And people were saying like, how did you do this? Like you guys must be working endlessly the past few months. And Jeff was like, no, no, no. This was three years ago. He's like, now it's just, it's the outcome of what I'm already planning. He's so, and his whole strategy is that it's, I'm not, right now, I'm not looking at Q2. I'm looking at 2025 Q4. He's like, so the, the work you're doing today is going to, is going to expand you three years down the road. And it's the brands that got in in 2016 
they fruited in 2018. The brands that in, that expanded in 2018, they got sold to an aggregate in 2021. So like it, it's the fruits of the labor at the end of the day. The big brands, big brands got it, but the small private label who has a budget that can actually spend the money or expand marketplaces and be agile, but be e-com driven first, they're going to win the long game. Uh, I, I think they're just going to have the advantage and yes, brand and size matters, but when it comes to ease of accessibility or hyper relationship with your brand, these small businesses are going to be able to without raising a ridiculous amount of cash. I think you'll still have to have a fair amount of cash to get into this game. It's not as easy as it was and a university student can just walk in the front door and dominate. It's just, it's, it's different, uh, but it is doable. It's doable. All right. Just want to thank you for joining us. Yeah, man. I'm happy to. I appreciate you having me on. Oh, it's been awesome. Hopefully everyone, uh, hopefully everyone learned from my three rants and baby caddies <laughs> a little bit about it. I didn't know about the 999 method. It's cool, man. It's a, it's a whole different strategy. And it's so early. Like if you want to real quiz someone, whether or not they know Amazon, ask them about the 999 trick. And you'll know, you'll talk about the, all these sellers that are OGs. Quiz them on the 999. I'm telling you, if, if they can answer it and go, how how did you determine competitor revenue in uh, way back when when you were selling? They'll let you know plain and simple. So it's a cool way that I'll quiz and I'll be like, you know, 999? And they'll go like, and it's almost like this little click going on. So welcome to the click. I'm happy to be a part of the click. Cool, man. I appreciate you having me on. Um, any other things, I'm, I want to get on these more and more often. I feel like you guys are talking about some really cool stuff. So if I can ever add some value to those questions that are getting asked, I'm happy to. I'm like, no. And organize the pretty face behind the screen. So, uh, can I talk about the technicalities? You guys are on a different level, but uh, I'm excited to watch you guys grow and everything you guys are doing. So, looking forward to this. Thank you for being here, Blair. And um, that's it for Taco Tuesday. Next episode, we're going to talk about targeting competitors. What strategies we actually get into to maybe steal or or not steal um, some of our competitor sales. Um, happy to see you guys next week. All right, thank you and signing off.